when it comes to absolute negatives. What do I mean by that? Well, you'll find that every evolutionist book that you read will say dinosaurs are extinct. Is that a real scientific statement? I mean, how would you prove dinosaurs are extinct? You'd have to be on every point of the Earth's surface all at the one time, looking in every direction, being a 100% excellent observer, saying there ain't no dinosaur here, mate. You know, I, well, I was an Australian scientist. Otherwise, he might have run behind a tree or something like that, <laughs> which is not as silly as what it sounds when you know that uh, many dinosaurs are as small as chickens. If they'd have survived to today, we would have had Kentucky Fried Dinosaur instead of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Sort of like the Russian cosmonauts. Remember when they got up around the Earth? They said, aha, there's no God, he's not here. Well, what were they looking for? How did they know where to look anyway? Did they know what evidence to expect? Somebody once said, if only they'd have jumped out of their spacecraft, they would have found him. And uh, that would have been real quick. Now, what I want to do is, when you understand that you have some limitations in the present in trying to go to the past, let's just look at this in relation to the question of origins and, and creation evolution. For instance, the origin of life. When I went to school, my teachers showed me the typical Stanley Miller diagram. Some of you remember this one? You know, put some chemicals from the original atmosphere, methane, ammonia, hydrogen, water vapour. By the way, I often wondered where the sample of that atmosphere was, but my teachers never could tell me. That's the same question as, were you there? And Zappa sparked you at Zappo, you formed some amino acids. We basically formed the building blocks of life. Hey, we basically made life in a test tube. I'm not going to go into the chemistry of all of that. It forms what's called a racemic mixture and the stereochemistry is all wrong. You'd never make life at all. But here's the point. What if somebody did make something in a test tube? What if they did? Imagine a professor getting up on television, having a test tube, a hairy thing hanging out the end looking at you. Ladies and gentlemen, using the best possible research message, millions of dollars worth of equipment, 50 years dedicated research, we finally made life in a test tube, proving no intelligence was necessary. Now... I've never understood how you can have all these scientists using their intelligence and using all of this beautiful equipment to try and tell you that life happened by chance. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. And incidentally, this was given when I went to school as the classic experiment on the origin of life that basically my teacher said, this is, this is it. I mean, this shows you evolution could happen. It's interesting in uh, Time magazine, how life began, October 11 last year, talking about Stanley Miller's glass jar experiment suggested the components of life were easily manufactured from the gases in the atmosphere, the conditions he created in his laboratory, laboratory, faithfully reflected the prevailing wisdom of the time. Keep in mind that when I went to school, this was this, this was it, this was the classic experiment. Now what are they saying? It was, says Chiba, a beautiful picture. Unfortunately, he adds, it's probably wrong. Well, so much for that. And yet, when I went to school, this is it. <laughs> it's interesting. When it comes to talking about the origin of life, as far as the Bible's concerned, what do we read? In the beginning, God created. You know what's interesting? I was at a youth group, youth and uh, college age, actually, in high school age of a Baptist church uh, just a week ago. And they were all singing. In fact, they had this song. I, I didn't understand the words till I looked on the screen, but the blue and red flashing lights and the swaying in the room and the darkness and everything. And this was the Sunday morning service. It was a little difficult to understand it all, but... It's very interesting. And uh, after all of this, I got up to them and said, well, you have an exciting time here. That's great. And you're all swaying and singing. And they were singing, I believe in Adam and Eve and all this stuff. And I said, great. How do you know there was an Adam and Eve? Uh -huh. <laughs> Who believes God created? Oh, you, you all believe God created? Great. Tell me, how do you know God created? 
Well, it's in the Bible. So the Bible's just a book. Why should I believe that book? I mean, give me some evidence. I mean, Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal parent and Godhead. So they are without excuse. The Bible says if you don't believe in God, you're without excuse. Where's the evidence? Show me how you would defend that there's a God who's the creator. And I went around all these college students and high school students and they sat there and said, It's by faith. Faith? I said, Is it a blind faith? Christianity is not a blind faith. I mean, defend your faith. You know what I found? They couldn't do it. For all their singing and swaying and everything else and getting ex supposedly excited about Christianity, they didn't understand what they believed. They couldn't defend what they believed. And that's one of the problems I find with a lot of young people today, that they don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe what they do. You believe Jesus died on a cross? Why did he die on a cross? For our sin. What sin? Y you know what sin is? No, I don't. Tell me what sin is. It's like one pastor once said to me, what do you want to worry about Genesis for? All you need to do is preach about sin. I said, what sin? I said, is it a lack of self-esteem? I know some preachers in California preach that. I mean, what is sin? And he said, sin's rebellion. I said, rebellion? How do you know that? Did you define that or somebody else define that? Who determines it's rebellion? Why is it rebellion? And he said, well, I didn't define it. And I said, well, how do you know it's rebellion? He said, because when you go back to Genesis, see, if you don't have a literal garden and a literal tree and a literal fruit and a literal Adam and a literal Eve and a literal serpent and a literal temptation and a literal fall, you don't literally have rebellion. That's why you believe in sin. That's what sin's all about. It's, its meaning is tied up with its origin. And you know, it's interesting, as I talk to young people right across this country in churches, conservative, evangelical churches, they might sort of have something floating out there as far as New Testament doctrine, but they don't ultimately know why they believe what they do and they can't defend it. Now, I can't spend all the time doing that this morning. You'll have to come to the seminar to see some of that on the weekend. But I'll give you a little glimpse here. I would say to them, when you came in here to this gym this morning, what did you notice? You looked at it and said, you concluded, wow, got here by an explosion in a brick factory. Of course not. You know that somebody does not, you can recognize the effect of intelligence. Or you put up Mount Rushmore, the president's head, my favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, it's embarrassing when kids ask me if I'm a living fossil. Someone wanted me to sign the $5 note the other day. It's Anyway, I put up the president's heads and say, how did the president's heads get there? Why, it's obvious, isn't it? Millions of, wind, millions of years of wind and water erosion formed the president's heads. Of course not. Maybe at election time. But you know at other times, you know it takes information and energy to get the president's heads. You can recognize the effect of intelligence. Now, there's a way of looking at your genes and your cells, and I'm sure some of your professors do this with you anyway, so I won't go into detail except to say this. When you look at the information system in your, in your cells, your genes, your DNA, nowhere in the world do we ever see information systems, language systems coming from disorder by chance. It always takes information to get information, which means ultimately the only thing that's logical and scientific is you start with infinite information in the beginning, God. And so when students used to ask me, all right, sir, where did God come from? I'd go through all of that, but in much more detail. Then I'd say, what do you believe, son? Do you believe matter came from nowhere for no reason? Do you believe matter has always existed? Do you believe matter by itself arranged itself into information systems against what we observe in science? I'm sorry, son, you've got the problem. You've got the blind faith. I haven't. Isn't it exciting as a Christian when if you know what to say and how to think and can logically defend your faith, you can put the others in the position of not having an answer and you can be the aggressive person witnessing to them? Isn't that how it should be? If the truth is on our side, of course it should be. Give you another example here. The rate of evolution, as we talked about. Now, when I went to school, my teacher said, Ah, evolution's happening. Look at dogs. Look at the changes in dogs. 
Well, let's consider that for a moment. Dingoes, coyotes, jackal, fennet, fox, college, great dane, little chihuahua, saint bernard, poodles. They're not really dogs. They're sort of a walking example of the curse more than anything. They're, um, I mean, a sort of a collection of mistakes on four legs. It, if, if Adam was here today and you showed him a poodle, what do you think Adam's reaction would be? What is that? I mean, what happened to it? Now, my point is this. All those particular names that I gave you, what were they? Dogs? What are they? Dogs? What will they be? Dogs? Is that evolution? No, it's just dogs. Dogs produce dogs. Cats produce cats. But of course, Darwin looked at that and he saw all this variation. He talked about natural selection. And of course, creationists believe in natural selection. We wrote about it before Darwin ever did. Nothing wrong with natural selection. We believe in mutation. Look at the poodle. <laughs> but natural selection and mutation, that's not evolution. In fact, let me sort of uh, explain it this way. Now, some of your biology profs here might just about have a heart attack when I show this diagram, but I'll explain why I changed it. You know how you learnt in, or you learn hopefully in biology about genes, you know, big A, little a, big B, little b. Remember that sort of stuff? You don't remember that stuff? You better remember that stuff. <laughs> anyway, I changed the A's and B's to X, Y and Z. Just, I don't know. I just like to be different. Now, I wanted to stand out to you. Here are pairs of genes. Let's say God creates a male dog and a female dog, and these are pairs of genes. Of course, there are thousands and thousands of these, and there are millions of possible combinations. You know, by meiosis in, in the male, you get the sperm, and you can get the big A, big B, big C. And by meiosis female, you get the egg, big A, big B, big C. Fertilization, here's an individual. Now, the point is, this individual came from these parents, didn't it? But this individual has lost the X, Y, and Z, which means this individual has less information than the parents got less variability. It's going to look like the parents, but not quite the same as the parents. And the same for these down here. And our point is this. Over a period of time, what does natural selection do? It results in loss of information, redistribution of information, specialization. My teachers even said to me, look at these here. They've evolved so far that they don't even interbreed anymore. This is great. That's evolution. Excuse me, miss. Yes. If they've specialized to that extent and lost that amount of information that they can't even interbreed, they can't regain the original information, they're worse off. They're not better off. And, you know, that was borne out by a conference in Chicago, Natural History Museum, November 1980, where many of the world's leading evolutionary experts got together to discuss the question of evolution and discussing the question of these little changes, the central question of the Chicago conference, recorded by Roger Lewin in Science, was whether the mechanisms underlying the little changes that we're talking about here can be extrapolated to explain the phenomena of macroevolution, evolution, reptiles to birds, ape-like ancestors to people and so on, as Darwin would tell us. At the risk of doing violence to positions of some of the people at the meeting, the answer can be given as a clear what? No. Because what does Reader's Digest and National Geographic and, and uh, the evolutionary textbooks tell us? Little changes add up to big changes. What do the experts say? It doesn't happen. Now, when I, as a, as a creationist, look at the information, what do I see is this. When I start with the Bible, it says God created distinct kinds of animals and plants. God put great vari variability within a kind. For instance, take people. Just from looking at the information in our genes, we know you could have many more children than the atoms in the universe and not get two looking the same. That's an incredible amount of variation. And, of course, over a period of time and accounting for the event of Noah's flood and the small number of animals and then the, then the speciation you'd have after the flood and so on, you can understand how you could get all sorts of varieties within a kind. And so when I look around, I see groups, I see variation within groups, but I don't see one kind changing into another. One of the interesting things you'll notice about museums, 
You'll never see evolution in the glass case. It's always on the glass case. The story applied to the evidence. And that's all it is. Evolution's a belief. When, when, the, uh, when it comes to the past and, say, the fossil record, as we said, fossils only exist in the present. What do the evolutionists do? They construct a geological time scale and they have one layer on top of another. This reflects evolution. Look, simple organisms at the bottom, complex at the top. It's interesting to note that when I even talk to students at uh, universities across this nation, how most people have this idea that most of the fossil record consists of dinosaurs and, and creatures like that, all sorts of vertebrates. In actual fact, 95% of the entire fossil record consists of shallow marine organisms like snails and, and insects. And of the other 5%, about 90% are plants, <coughs> something like 0.25% of the entire fossil record is of vertebrate fossils. It's a different sort of record than what most of us really think. And what this is, of course, is a story applied to the evidence. Yes, there are lots of rock layers. Yes, there are lots of fossils. But how would you explain billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth? You know, if there was a world flood, a catastrophe, a global catastrophe, what would you expect to find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And what do you find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I really like saying that. <laughs> and you see, my point is, when you start with the Bible, you can build a model and you get a totally uh, different interpretation. Actually, there's a really important thing here. You see, just to make the point to you, if you start with Scripture, I believe it's obvious there was no death, bloodshed and disease and suffering before sin. I mean, God killed an animal because of, because of sin. He shed blood because of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We know there's going to be a new heavens and new earth one day in which righteousness dwells and death will be thrown into the lake of fire and the curse will be removed. Paul says in Romans 8, the whole of creation groans and travaileth in pain. There's something wrong with today's world. When you look at the fossil record, it's not just a record of death of billions of creatures, but it's a record in which some of those creatures show evidence of all sorts of disease where creatures have been ripping up other creatures and it's a record of death and cruelty and brutality and, and suffering and disease. It's a horrible record. But if you as a Christian say that that record existed millions of years before man, you've got a major problem. That destroys the whole foundations of the message of the cross. God instituted death and bloodshed because of sin so man could be redeemed. And by the way, if any of you have heard of some of the teachings that are, that are uh, being popularized in churches lately by, by uh, progressive creationists like Dr. Hugh Ross and others, what they're saying is that there was millions of years of death, suffering and disease before sin. Then what did sin do? What's wrong with this world? What are we going to be restored to? Why did Jesus Christ die physically on a cross if physical death wasn't a consequence of sin? And you see, when you start with Scripture, you realize we can't believe in the millions of years. We can't believe in the billions of years. There's something wrong with that view. How would you account for the death of billions of creatures after Adam sinned? If there was a world flood, what would you expect to find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And what do you find? Have a guess. But of course we're told, but look at the Grand Canyon. I never remember which. I think in Australia it's that way. I think here. I think that's it. Look at the Grand Canyon. <coughs> it's obvious it took millions of years to get there. I mean, lots of time and a little bit of water. <laughs> Actually, I think it was lots of water and a little bit of time. But... How can you have such different interpretations of the canyon? Didn't those layers take millions of years to get there? Sure, some of you have seen some of the evidence from Mount St. Helens, a tiny little inky-dinky, small, minute, not very big, little volcano. Do you get the idea? A little puff of smoke. But catastrophic processes resulted, and up to 600 feet of layers were laid down in places. Here's a 25-foot-thick section. It consists of thousands of individual layers. This has been researched by 
uh, Dr. Steve Austin from the Institute for Creation Research, when I went to university, I know my geology profs would tell me, oh, you assume one layer a year. You know, Charles Lyell's uniformitarian idea of slowly over millions of years, layer upon layer. Actually, how long did it take for those thousands upon thousands of individual layers to be laid down? Less than three hours. And of course, our point is this. If a tiny little catastrophe like Mount St. Helens can do that, what about fountains of the deep breaking open all over the earth? If you had lots of volcanic action and tidal waves and mud flows and earthquakes and all sorts of things, what would you expect to find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And of course, that's why I believe that the event of Noah's flood provides a great basis for explaining a lot of the geology. I don't think all the fossils came from the flood. I think some came after the flood, but I do believe that you had to have fossils formed after sin, fossils of animals in particular. And by the way, all that fits with the fact if you read Genesis 1, all the animals and men were vegetarian to start with. Because some people get worried about that when they see animals like this with sharp teeth. And they say, but why, what? surely it has sharp teeth like that because it's a carnivore. Just because an animal has sharp teeth doesn't mean it's a carnivore. It just means it has sharp teeth. Boy, that's startling, isn't it? And you know, there are lots of animals today with real sharp teeth that only eat plants. Most bears are vegetarian. The panda eats bamboo. When I went to the San Diego Zoo to see the panda, along with five million other people on the same day, we lined up for two million years, finally got to see the panda. And the guide said, do you realize the panda evolved to be a carnivore to eat meat so it can get sharp teeth so it can eat bamboo? I looked at my kids and said, what do you think? And they said, we know, Dad, it's designed to do what it does do, and what it does do, it does do very well, doesn't it? <laughs> By the way, I, I remember when I went to school, when I was a teacher, students, sir? Yeah. How did Noah get them all, all them animals in the boat, eh? said, well, how many animals did he need to get in the boat? I don't know, sir, but he couldn't have fed them, could he, eh? What size was the boat? I don't know, sir, but it couldn't have happened, eh? You know, it really worries me when students can't fit an unknown number of animals in an unknown size boat. It's even worse when they say, hey, sir, how did Moses get all them animals in the boat, eh? By the way, did he need to take on dingoes and wolves and coyotes? And he certainly didn't have a poodle. But did he need to take... He, all he needed were two what? Dogs of the dog kind. And so it goes on. In fact, there was so much room in the ark, as I tell people, that when that door stood open, there was room for people to come through the door. You know, I just got a letter from a guy yesterday who's been arguing with me for the past few months and he says, but the majority of scientists, but the majority of scientists believe, but the majority, you know, finally I get so frustrated with some of those people. My point is the majority of scientists in Noah's day died. <laughs> and so did the majority of theologians. <laughs> just because a majority believes something doesn't mean it's right. When it comes to dinosaurs... If there was no death before Adam sinned, how do you explain dinosaurs? Well, if God made land animals on day six, and those days have to be ordinary days, the Hebrew word yom, whenever it's qualified with evening, morning, and number, means an ordinary day. And in Genesis 1, it's qualified by all three. Then if God made land animals on day six, dinosaurs must live beside people. That's right, I can prove it to you. I have a photograph that Eve took in the Garden of Eden. And uh, <laughs> you can tell the Garden of Eden was in Australia. But actually, we don't know where the Garden of Eden was. The whole world's been destroyed by a flood. So then, if they lived beside Adam and Eve, two of every kind of land animal went on board Noah's Ark. How did he fit the dinosaurs on board? Weren't there hundreds of kinds of dinosaurs? No, there might be hundreds of names, but not hundreds of kinds. I was in England, and a guy came up to me once with his wife, and his wife says, 
my husband has a real stumbling block. If you can answer this question for him, and, and, and he said to me, look, he said, I really want to become a Christian. He said, but there's one thing that nobody's been ever able to answer for me. He said, it's embarrassing to ask it. And he took me aside and he whispered and his wife said, please, can you answer this? And I'm thinking, boy, what if I can't answer this? And he said, I said, what's your question? He said, how did Noah get the big dinosaurs in the ark? I said, come here. I said, big dinosaurs were once baby dinosaurs and they grew up. And he looked at me and he said, I'm stupid, aren't I? <laughs> and by the way, only a few were big. You might see lots of big skeletons in museums around the world, but only a few were really large. What happened to those that didn't go on the ark? They drowned. What would you expect to find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers. Like... If they went on the ark, did they come off the ark after the flood? Of course they did. Is there a mention of them in the Bible? I believe there is. Job chapter 40 verse 15 talks about behemoth. And of course, some of your Bibles say this was an elephant. It says it has a tail like a cedar tree. Now, I've observed elephants' tails for many years. I've never seen one looking like a cedar tree. It goes on to say it's the chief of the ways of God, the largest land animal that God made. I believe it's a description of a dinosaur. Why are we not prepared to say it's a dinosaur? Because we've been thoroughly indoctrinated to believe that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago and didn't live beside people. In fact, people say, but the word dinosaur is not even in the Bible. Of course it's not. This was translated in 1611. The word dinosaur was invented in 1841. Do you know what they were called before they were called dinosaurs? Dragons. The word dragons used a number of times in the Old Testament. There are dragon legends in the history books, like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles you'll see in the British Museum going back a thousand years, and the descriptions of the dragons fit dinosaurs. I believe they were well-known. The Chinese... Red dragons, and, and, and well-known right across the world. That's why you have so many stories about dragons. Well, we could go on talking about this for millions of years. I want to say to you that uh, I want to end with, with what I think is probably the most important part of the seminar we're conducting on the weekend at Grace Community, and you have a flyer all about that uh, particular seminar. But let me go back to the quote from Jeffrey Dahmer. He said, because he was taught he came from slime and was taught evolution... Therefore, he believed he was accountable to no one but himself. And people, that really sums up what evolution is all about. You see, just as you can start with man's beliefs about the past to build your models of science and interpret the evidence, it'll also determine your worldview as well. And I hope that you've sort of seen this morning too. Do you realise that as I was talking there about the way we interpret the evidence and the way the evolutionists do, we're looking at the same evidence. You see, the fight's not about facts. The fight's about how you interpret facts, which depends upon what? The beliefs you have, the presuppositions you have to start with. And this is where it leads to. If you have the presupposition that there's a God and he made Adam and we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, which means we're all related, by the way, whether you like it or not. Isn't that true? You know, I ask the pastors at pastor's breakfast, I say to them, would you marry a couple if they were related to each other? You know, 90% of the times they say no. Then I say to them, I've got a real problem with that. Why is that? If your wife was not related to you before you married her, what did you marry? Because you are all related, aren't you? You're all of one blood. You go back to two people, Adam and Eve. So of course you're related before you get married. That's why Jesus Christ could die for the whole world. Because he became a man, the last Adam, to die for the sins that Adam brought into the world because he's the representative head. That's why Jesus Christ is the new representative head because we're all of one blood. 
Now, there is a law against close intermarriage in Scripture because over a period of time we've degenerated. We've got mistakes in our genes, thousands of them. I mean, look around the room. You thought poodles were bad. Actually, they've got more than you. But if there's Adam in your ancestry, who made you? God, who sets the rules? God. But if there's ape in your ancestry, you're just an animal. Who sets the rules? You do. To whom are you accountable? No one but yourself. That's what Jeffrey Dahmer thought. See, as a Christian, I recognize, why do I believe marriage is one man for one woman? Because Genesis is true. In fact, think about this for a moment, young people. Can you name one biblical doctrine that ultimately, directly or indirectly, does not go back to the book of Genesis? Try to name one. You can't. Ultimately, every single biblical doctrine of theology, directly or indirectly, and a lot of them directly, are founded in the book of Genesis. Which means if you don't understand and believe and can defend the book of Genesis, you don't understand the Christian faith. And you can't defend the Christian faith. Jesus quoted from Genesis in Matthew 19, talking about marriage, to say you want to understand the meaning of marriage, you go back to Genesis. Why do you wear clothes? You go back to Genesis. All of our doctrine goes back to Genesis. In other words, one of the things I want to do with my own children is to make sure they understand why do we have a Christian worldview I don't want to impose it from the top down as a lot of parents do today. I want to build it from the foundation up. Why do you obey me? Because God made you and God sets the rules and God said obey your parents. I build from the foundation up. Why will you only date a Christian? Because you understand the meaning of marriage which goes back to Genesis. You will not date a non-Christian if you understand the foundations of marriage. Why is the rightful place for sex within marriage one man for one woman for life? Because God made marriage and God sets the rules. And I have found even in many conservative evangelical churches today where a lot of young people get involved in sex outside of marriage and everything else because they haven't built their lives on the foundation that God has created, God sets the rules, and we've been trained in an environment, sadly, and many of us through a public education system, that because of the teaching of evolution and millions of years, we tend to grow up with this idea that man apart from God can determine truth. And you know what? That's a sin of Adam, isn't it? I'm not going to listen to God's word. I can decide my own opinions. And young people, every one of us has a propensity to do exactly that because we're all children of Adam. Me, you, your professors, everyone. We're more likely to start outside the Bible to question God's word than we are to start with the scripture. And therefore, in issues of morality, it comes down to what does God say? Have you built your foundation for your thinking on the word of God or is it just human opinion? But the more people are taught evolution, even Christians who believe in evolution, they start to think, why can't I write my own rules? Why not be a homosexual? Why not do what I want with sex? Why not abort babies? Get rid of spare cats. Get rid of spare kids. What's the difference? And you see, when we look at America today and we see the collapse of the Christian ethics, even in our own churches, some of the marriage problems and family breakups and moral problems and, and, and in society at large, it's directly related to the fact that a foundation that was there once has been removed, it's been replaced by a different foundation and the more the evolutionary foundation pervades our society, the more people will build this way of thinking. And see, it's, it's sort of the same as what we were doing before. You start with this foundation, no death before Adam, you interpret geology in a particular way. You start with this foundation, there was death for millions of years, you interpret geology in that way. You start with this foundation... God is creator, it means God sets the rules. You start with this foundation, it means you set the rules. You see, the presuppositions you have determine your model, your framework, your worldview, the way you interpret the evidence. I like to sum it up with two castles. Here's the evolution foundation, the structure of humanism, those issues that come out of that, abortion, etc. Here's the foundation of creation, the structure of Christianity. You know, the humanists in this nation have been very clever. Knock out this foundation and that structural collapse. 
And it is all around us. And what do Christians do? Shoot at each other, shoot into nowhere, shoot themselves in the foot, take pot shots at the issues. You know what I mean by pot shots at the issues? Now, don't get me wrong when I say this, but I want to make the point. Abortion is not the problem in this nation. Homosexual behaviour is not the problem. They are symptoms of a problem. And I believe too much of the church has concentrated on the symptoms, which is why today we have people getting very emotional and violence and all the rest of it, because the church hasn't really thought the battle where it's at. See, people think about this. If you go to an abortion clinic to impose your Christian ethic in regard to abortion on people who have this foundation of evolution, they don't hear you. They don't understand because they don't have the foundation for that particular structure. You see, the real battle's down here. And that's why what we're doing this weekend at Grace Community is to give a seminar to help people understand we need to restore this foundation in our own thinking, number one, in our own churches, in our own families and in this nation and knock out this foundation and those weapons and those issues all at the same time. And until we see the real nature of the battle at this presuppositional level, level this foundational level, we will not see America change. You will not win the abortion battle. See, people think, oh, you get the right people in Congress, they'll vote in laws to change abortion. Guess what? That happened, what, a number of years ago, didn't it? The laws started to change. And I said to people, look, if another generation come in who believe evolution even more, they'll change the laws back just like that. And that's exactly what happened. See, what's going to change America in the long run? When people at a grassroots level change their hearts and attitudes towards the God of creation and get back to the authority of the word of God, that's what's going to change America. It's got to change from the foundation up. And young people, your own thinking has to be from the foundation up. We have got to get away from this idea that we start outside of Scripture and we can determine the truth and understand that all of our thinking in every area, whether it's geology, biology, morality, doesn't matter what it is, must start and be founded in the Word of God. God knows everything. The Bible, the revealed Word of God, is a little bit of that infinite information which He's revealed to us to enable us to come to right conclusions, which means there's a Christian worldview that starts in the foundational book of Genesis. Well... That's just a little introduction as to why I believe this whole issue is important. It's not just a side issue. Many people think the creation ministry is just a side issue. It's, it's not vital. People, this is where the battle's at today. This is where we're really at in regard to the future of this nation. As you leave this morning, you'll, uh, a couple of things, announcements I wanted to make to you. First of all, we are going to be at Grace Community for a seminar on the weekend and you can get much, much more in detail there at the seminar. Also, we have... Uh, a newsletter for our organisation. I came over on loan to the Institute for Creation Research from our organisation in Australia for seven years. Instead of returning to Australia, we decided to expand the creation ministry over here, so we started another organisation in the Cincinnati area to outreach to the eastern Midwest. In fact, uh, at that airport, we're, we're within a two-hour flight of 80% of America's population. But if you want to get our free newsletter, you can fill in that little uh, goal form and just uh, leave it on the tables out in the lobby there or leave it up here on the stage as you leave, and we'll send that to you. Also, if any of you are interested in our creation magazine, it's the Christian answer to National Geographic to help you think Christian and aggressively witness and defend your faith. Beautiful, glossy magazine that goes around the world. We can bill you for that if any of you have any money at all. And because you're students, let me tell you some of the books we have out here. This is, I think, a good summary of what I said this morning. And I think it's $1.95. Some of you probably have to get a loan to even buy that. But... Uh, Stones and Bones, and by the way, we'll pay the sales tax on any books this morning. We just round everything up to the nearest dollar um, because we know that students are poor. But that's a great little summary. 
two books that I think go together to do what I did this morning in much more detail. Dr. Parker, who's a professor at Clearwater Christian College in Florida, speaks with us at a lot of our seminars. He used to be an evolutionist, became a creationist. He knows the best arguments for evolution. He taught them. And they're, um, in here, the classic Darwinian arguments refuted. And a good book to go with that, hand in hand, is a book I really like because I wrote it. It's called The Lie. has an Australian accent. But a lot of what I did this morning... Uh, particularly about the importance of the issue, why it matters, the whole foundational nature of this, why Christians can't believe in evolution millions of years, how all that doctrine goes back to Genesis, great basis for your morality, etc. Uh, those two go hand in hand. If you could ever afford this book, this is my favourite, Dr. Henry Morris from the Institute for Creation Research. When I read this 17 years ago, it's a reason I can be speaking to you this morning. It's a verse-by-verse verse, uh, scientific and devotional commentary on Genesis. That's how I got to think foundationally about the Book of Beginnings. Uh, this book here, The Most Asked Questions Answered, Cain's Wife, Origin of Races, Dinosaurs, etc. And uh, with simple uh, answers and uh, lots of diagrams and uh, all sorts of interesting material. And uh, thinking about uh, the future and thinking about children or some of your own uh, nieces, nephews or whatever. These are some of the teaching books we have on dinosaurs. My wife and I did an A to Z rhyme book through the history of the world from beginning to end. And at the back are all the parents and teacher notes we used to teach our children. You can use those to develop Sunday school ideas and ideas in your youth group, in fact, for any age. There are materials dealing with the young earth. We'll have a whole range of books and videos at the seminar. In fact, uh, the biggest range you'll find anywhere in the, in the world. And uh, Dr. John Morris has uh, done that sort of thing. And I, I believe there's some, some of our videos in your library. We have a brand new set of videos too called Answers in Genesis. I'm not sure whether your school has those or not, but I know they have some of our videos in your library and uh, you can get some of this material in more detail. The uh, only other thing that uh, I wanted to uh, say to you was that if you can afford to come to the seminar on the weekend, please have a look at your priorities to see if you can. If you can't afford it and you honestly can't afford it, all you have to do is turn up on the door and say, I can't afford it and put in an envelope whatever you can give, and even if it's a dollar, and we'll let you come in because we don't turn people away if they can't afford it. And uh, so keep that in mind. We would love to have you there for the whole weekend, Friday night, all day Saturday. And I do hope that you uh, see that this is not just a side issue. It really is a vital issue. It really is a foundational issue. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we just praise you and thank you that your word is truth. And Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we recognize that for each of us, Lord, there are many times when we've been like Adam and we've started outside of your word and we've questioned your word. We've, we've used our own fallible human opinion. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for those times, that you'd help us to be consistent as Christians, to ground our whole world view on your word. And Lord, if there's areas where, where we've been totally inconsistent, you should help us to see those, help us to be like the Bereans, to search the scriptures, to see if these things be so. But well, we do pray for the seminar this weekend. We ask your blessing upon it. We ask for good weather. Lord, we know you're in charge of all of that. We just pray too for this college, Lord, as it is one of those rare colleges that stands for the infallibility of the authority of your word. And we pray that you would bless it mightily and students would go out here able to defend their faith and, and to have a great uh, effect on this nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.